Hey, never underestimate the power of having a good friend. Uh, do you guys know what I'm talking about? A good friend. Somebody who's going to be there for you if you, uh, if you needed them. Somebody who's there to, to, uh, well, well, to dig you out of the sand when uh, you get your family minivan stuck in the sand. Uh, back in California, one of our favorite uh, trips as a family was on Thursdays to go to the farmer's market. Uh, we uh, would normally go to the, the local community college where they held the farmer's market in the parking lot, but, you know, COVID happened, and uh, the community college wasn't allowed to do that anymore. And so other than shutting it down, uh, they moved it to a field. It was actually a, a, a river basin that uh, uh, was dry most of the time because, you know, it's California and we don't get rain out there, uh, but uh, we... Uh, uh, they, they moved it there, and one of the, the characteristics of a river basin is that it's filled with sand, right? The sediment that, that washes down into that river the few times out of the year that it gets rain, uh, is, uh, it brings the, the, the sand with it, or a really loose uh, gravel. And so my wife went to the farmer's market with the family on a, on a Thursday morning and uh, parked the van uh, as she normally did. Uh, went shopping, got the family all loaded back into it, and couldn't move the van. So I got a phone call. I didn't happen to be with her that, that day. I was at work and, you know, working away and uh, get the phone call. I'm stuck. I said, okay, I'll jump in my car. I'll be there as soon as I can get there. It was about 20 minutes away. I had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not much of a mechanical type guy. I'm not going to, I don't have, I had a, you know, Nissan Sentra, like it wasn't going to help at all, right? I mean, uh, it wasn't going wasn't gonna to get that out there. But before I got there, she had been talking to one of her friends, and her friend's husband decided to, he, he thought it was great. He thought it was a great opportunity. Bud jumped in his off-roading Jeep that uh, he used on weekends, right? He, he just thought it was a great opportunity to use the Jeep more than anything. Uh, it was a raised Jeep, got these big tires on it, got a winch on the front of it, and he was so excited about getting over there and helping, helping my wife get this family minivan unstuck from the, the sand. Um, I was grateful that he was there to do it because I still didn't have a plan by the time I arrived on how I was actually going to get the thing out other than maybe calling AAA, right? That's probably the, the most powerful weapon I had at that moment. You know, there was a part of me for a few moments that was a little bit, I don't know, um, offended that he would come and help my wife, right? Later he said, you know, I was there to help you more than your wife, right? Because I knew you wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> I uh, came to appreciate Bud and his family. Unfortunately, during COVID, we lost Bud. He left behind his wife and his two small kids. Um, I miss Bud. I miss his friendship. I miss his willingness to jump in his Jeep on a moment's notice and to be there for us. Not because he expected payment, not because he, he owed us in some way, but simply because he was a friend. Never underestimate the power of a good friend. In Mark chapter 2, we see a story of, a, of some good friends, some people who are willing to do whatever it took in order to get their friend an encounter with Jesus. Mark chapter 2 starts this way. 
And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, before we get too far, let's get some background, some, some, some context in order to understand what's happening here as we start chapter 2. Jesus had been doing ministry here in this region. It was north of the, the Sea of Galilee. And a leper came to him in chapter 1 and asked Jesus to heal him if he was willing. Jesus said he was willing and healed the man, but gave him some very specific instructions. He very specifically told him, go to the temple, allow them to certify that you're clean. This was a process that happened. Jewish law was very serious about skin conditions, and you had to be certified by a priest in the temple in order to be able to re-enter back into society and to be able to, to hold a normal life like you and I would have. But Jesus tells him to go and get the certification that he needs, but not to tell anyone, especially not tell them how he got healed. He wanted the man to keep it a secret. Well, the man completely disobeyed Jesus. In fact, it says that he... Um, he couldn't keep it to himself. Uh, I'm looking quickly for it. Anyways, it says that he, oh, here it is. It says that, um, uh, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer enter a town. So here this man is going out telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. And people start to show up at Jesus' doorstep asking him for help as well. People started mobbing him. In fact, it says that he went out into the wilderness in order to try and get away from the people. And he spent time out in the wilderness praying and preparing for his ministry. And guess what happened? The people found him there as well. Not just the people from that region, but from all regions started coming and asking for Jesus' help as well. Now Mark is a master at skipping over the details in between things. When you read Mark, he's just going to go to the important stories, right? He's not going to give you all the details in between. And so we, we see in the end of chapter 1, Jesus heals this leper. He goes out into the wilderness. People are coming. And then in chapter 2, bam, he's back in Capernaum. Now it says there that Jesus was back home. Let's clarify that for just a bit. Jesus was back, probably a, a better phrase for that would be at his home base. Right? We know that Jesus didn't have a home per se. He himself said that he had nowhere to lay his head, that he, he, he didn't own a home. But this place, this probably Peter's home, became home base for them and their ministry. They would return here time and again. And here's where we would see Mary and Martha serving them. Right Here's where we would see them coming back to time and again. And it would serve as their home base. Well, Jesus returns here, but he returns to a very different ministry than the one that he left when he went out into the wilderness. He returns to a ministry where people are coming and gawking and, and trying to find out who this Jesus guy was all about. Many of them coming in order to, to, to see what Jesus could do for them, to heal them, to, to, to free them of, of, of demonic beings. They're coming to Jesus for a number of different reasons. They're also coming to Jesus to test him, to, to see if he really is the real deal. 
Jesus is returning to a ministry that's full of a lot of skepticism. The healing of the leper changed his public profile. And Jesus is now having to manage that in addition to doing the ministry that he was called to do. He was, he was pretty clear in, in chapter 1 that his ministry was to preach. To preach the coming of the kingdom. And nothing was going to deter him from it. But, but let's look at what, what, what the effects of the leper not being obedient to Jesus had on Jesus' ministry. In, in verse 2 it goes on to say, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus had, had gone to this home, had uh, began to preach the word, and people came out to see him. It says so many people came out to see him that the place was packed. That the people were, 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 were coming out the door just trying to peek in. You, you imagine people peeking through windows just trying to hear what Jesus had to say. No, a lot of archaeological work has been done in this region in the last 50 years. In fact, they found two temples, one built right on top of each other. This, this was an important Jewish site for many years until the town was completely abandoned. It, it, it wasn't an inhabited town, inhabited town uh, when they began the archaeological digs. But it was obvious that it was an important town back in the day. In fact, they found this house there, this, this fairly large home that had a large open area that was designed in, in the same way that they would design a synagogue. It, it was like a gathering place more than it was a home. And many people believed that that might be the very home that Jesus was standing in in that day. You can go there and visit it today. It was, it was a home where early Christians would gather and meet and have services, much like what we're doing here today. But Jesus started this presence by his very teaching there in that place. So the house is packed. Jesus is teaching. And in verse 3, it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And, they, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So four men come carrying their friend in order to have an encounter with Jesus. These friends knew that this man must have an encounter with Jesus. That if there was any hope for him, any hope that he would walk again and live a normal life, that that hope existed somewhere inside that house, teaching a room full of people about the word of God. And that their friend needed to have an encounter with this man. They were willing to go beyond that. They were willing to innovate to make it happen. Now, I imagine four guys holding the corner of a mat with a paralytic man laying on it. They get up to the house. They hear Jesus was going to be there. And they begin to, to look for a way. Look for a way to get their friend inside that building. They try the side door, but it's packed. 
people are jammed in there. They, they, they try the front door, but it's obvious before they even get there that, that people are pouring out of that front door as well. They try the windows, but people are sitting in the windows, and, and, and there, there just is no easy way in order to get into that place. It would have been easy for them to decide, well, today must not be the day. We might have to try again tomorrow. There, there was a, another story in Scripture that gives us an idea that that was probably pretty typical. There was a, a pool that existed, a pool that, that swirled every now and again, and, 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 and crippled, paralytic people would, would gather around that pool. And when it began to swirl, they would try to hurl themselves into it to be the first one to get into that pool. But it was common that they weren't the first one, especially if they were, they were um, disabled in some way. It would, it would take them some time. They'd have to pull themselves into it. And so they would wait. They would wait for the pool to swirl again and try again another day. But, Jesus, but this paralytic man's friends did not have that attitude. They didn't just throw up their hands and say, well... That's it for today. It looks like we'll have to try again tomorrow and see if Jesus is available then. But instead, they're persistent. They decided to innovate. I, I imagine that one of them was a builder. That one of them began to look at the structure of the building and begin to see what was possible. <clears throat> if the doorways weren't clear, if the windows weren't clear, we have to find another way to get our buddy in to see this man, Jesus. And I imagine that one of them began to look around and say, okay, there's the support beams, and you know, we're not going to be able to get in that way, but, but you know, right in between those two, there's probably a place where if we sawed a hole in that, the whole place isn't going to come falling down. Begin to use the talents, the time, and the physical strength that they were given in order to find a solution for their friend. They used all of those things to assure that their friend would meet Jesus. Or how about the other friend that's holding the corner and be like, you want to do what? Are you sure they're not going to arrest us and haul us off for ruining their house? You want us to put a hole in the roof? But we don't see any evidence that they fought back. Instead, they said, he needs to see Jesus, and they used, you know, they picked up maybe a little bit higher, and, you know, they, they, they got him up on top of the roof somehow. They all had to work together in order to make it happen. And they got their encounter with Jesus. Imagine Jesus teaching in that place. You know, the, the, the spackling, I don't know what it's called, starts falling from above, you know, and he, he, notices it at first, but he goes on teaching, and before long, it's obvious that there's a saw or something coming through the roof up and down. These men were persistent. There was nothing that was going to stop them from getting their friends an encounter with Jesus. Their example should be one for all of us. See, God, I believe, has supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your life. Somewhere around 8 to 15 people that you do life with on a regular basis. They're your, your family, your friends, the people who live down the street, your coworkers at work. They, they're people you love. 
And they, they might even be people you don't care that much about. In fact, they might annoy you. But they're the people that God has placed on the front row of your life. And he has asked you to invest in their life, to be Jesus to them on a daily basis. Are you willing to go to the extent that these friends were in order to make sure that those people in your life have an encounter with Jesus? Maybe you don't even know who those people are. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, double dog dare you, to make a list of them. A three-by-five card works great. Or the back of your notes on a Sunday sermon works as well. Or, you know, the the note app on your phone is is a great resource. It could become the most powerful resource that you have outside of God's Word itself. Make a list of those 8 to 15 people. It changes all the time. Revise your list as you you move. Our 8 to 15 just changed dramatically. We move from one side of the country to the other. Our 8 to 15 has completely been turned upside down. But we know that God has supernaturally and strategically placed people in our lives. And as we settle, it's going to become more and more clear who those people are. There's nobody in the front row right now. But I guarantee that there's 8 to 15 people in your front row that God has put there in order that you could be an example of who Jesus is to them. Are you willing to be persistent like these men, to use your time, your talent, your physical strength in order to make sure that those people in your front row have an encounter with Jesus? Look at the encounter that that, that this man had with Jesus. It wasn't the encounter anybody was expecting. It says in, in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What glorious news. We celebrate that today. But I imagine that everybody that was in that room that day said, Huh? His sins are forgiven? That's not why these friends were bringing their friend to Jesus. Jesus is solely focused on the man's spiritual condition while everybody else is distracted by his physical condition. They thought that this man's greatest need was to be relieved physically from his ailments. Was it a need the man had? Absolutely. He was tormented by his physical disabilities. But was it his greatest need? Jesus pierces through that question once and for all, by ignoring the man's physical needs and instead focusing solely on his spiritual needs. Jesus offers him. In fact, Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. Now, real quick, take a look at that verse, verse 5 again. Why is his sins forgiven? Because of the man's faith? We know very little about the man. We, we, we don't hear much about it. We don't know what his physical ability was, whether he was able to talk or comprehend. We know none of that. All we know is that he had four friends who cared enough about him to get him to Jesus. And it says because of, or Jesus saw their faith. It's plural. Not just the man's faith. Maybe the man is part of that. But it said because of the faith of his friends, Jesus honored them. And forgave the man his sins. It was the greatest need that this man had. In fact, in forgiving this man's sins, Jesus confronts a widely and wrongly held theological belief 
You see, healing and forgiveness is inseparable. But for many years, probably hundreds of years at this point, the Jewish people thought that they were one and the same. That a man's physical condition was a result of his righteousness or his sin. Right? That, that if you had sinned somewhere in your past, that it was the result of the physical condition that you were in today. That if you had a physical disability, it was a direct cause from sin that had happened in your past. Jesus blows that belief out of the water. In fact, it was a belief that we see even in Job. So it was more than hundreds of years. Job was probably the first book of the Bible that was written. It goes back even further than that, right? Where Job's friends are accusing him. All of these bad things that are happening has to be because of sin in your life somewhere. And yet God refutes that in that book. And here we have God in the flesh refuting it in front of these people. You see, he forgave the man of his sins, but the man did not stand up from his mat and walk. His sins were forgiven. He was cleared. He was right with God. He had peace with God. And yet he still remained paralyzed. He still remained on that mat. Jesus was confronting the wrongly held beliefs of the people who had gathered there. You see, healing and forgiveness are inseparable, but it's not a cause and effect relationship. Our, our physical disabilities that we have today, the, 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 the things that plague us, illness, sickness, are all a result of being in a sinful, fallen world. But it's not a cause and effect relationship as many of the people that his day believed. Our greatest need and that of those in our relational world is to be forgiven and reconciled back to a right relationship with an almighty, all-powerful, and all-loving God. Do you live your life as though that is true? This is the challenge to all of us. The, the, the person on the corner begging for food, the, their greatest need is not food. Their greatest need is a relationship with Jesus. Whether or not they're willing to accept it is a whole different, whole different story, right? The, the, the person that you are doing life with whose, whose relation, relational world is falling apart all around them, their family's falling apart, their marriage is falling apart, whatever it might be, their greatest need is not to be reconciled back with their husband or with their wife or with their kids. Their greatest need is that they would be in right relationship with the Lord of the universe. The guy who's struggling to get up every day and go to work, who's struggling with the, the mundanity of life, who, who would rather be out hunting or fishing or doing something else, but, but he's, he's told he has to get up and go to work every day. His greatest need is not a different job. It is not a, a, another adventure that he could go on. His greatest need is that he would step into the adventure of a lifetime by being in right relationship with the God of the universe. Now, when one of those people step into a right relationship with God, it doesn't make everything else go away. You still have to get up the next day and go to work. The physical uh, deformities or the physical illnesses still exist. The relational 
world is still broken. But I believe that Jesus goes to work in each of our lives to either fix those things or to give us what we need in order to endure them in this life. But it is our greatest need to be right with God. There might even be people in this room today that have not come to a realization that that's their greatest need. And I want to invite you today, get right with God. In fact, let me say it a different way because it's probably more right. Allow God to make things right between you and him. Romans 5.1 makes it clear. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can be at peace with God, whatever it is that's tormenting you today. If you would come to Jesus' feet and allow him and the, the sacrifice that he made on that cross in order to cover over your sins, he will make you right with God today. And he will give you the strength that you need in order to figure out everything else. He'll give you the wisdom that you need in his word in order to be able to figure out the other things that are going on in your life. But your greatest need is to be made right with God. And we as his church, when I use that term church, let me be very clear. I'm talking about the ecclesia, the gathering of his people. I'm talking about you and me, not about a building or chairs or microphones or music stands. I'm talking about the people of God. Somewhere along the way, about 500 years ago, we, we, we switched out that term ecclesia with the, the German term kirka, which was a building, a building used for worship. In fact, we get the English word church from the word kirka, right? But that's not what we're talking about when we read about the church in, in Scripture. He's talking about the people that he has called out from the world and called into a life of righteousness, a life based upon the truth of his word. He's talking about you and I. And you and I, his people, the church is God's plan A for the world. He's gonna turn the world upside down. He's gonna redeem the world for his purposes. He has called you into your world, those 8 to 15 people that you see on a regular basis. He's put you right there on purpose in order that you may shine his goodness, that you may be an example of his, of his grace right there in the midst of their world. Look, I've been involved in a lot of parachurch ministry over the, world, over the years. I've had some great experiences working even telling people about who Jesus is uh, through parachurch ministry. But parachurch ministry is not God's plan for redeeming the world. The church is God's plan for redeeming the world. Praise God that we get to use those kind of ministries in order to, to come alongside the church and to help it in that mission. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He didn't say that about anything else. This is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. Jesus didn't make a backup plan. He didn't give us a, well, if that doesn't work out, we'll come up with another solution. And history has shown us for the last 2,000 years that he hasn't needed one. The church has always overcome every, 
every difficult time that it has found itself in. The church has thrived throughout the years. That doesn't mean that it's always existed in a specific location. We can see in Capernaum, the church doesn't exist there anymore. It's just an empty field of dirt. And there's other areas of the world where Jesus speaks specifically to those churches that it doesn't exist today. But the church has continued to thrive wherever, wherever it has taken root. In fact, today it continues to grow. I know that's not what you see when you turn on CNN, Fox, you know, everything like that. We're told that we have to worry about the church, that it's in decline, that, you know, whatever... And that might be true in in a specific community, or maybe even in the United States. By the way, it isn't true. It's just, it's not the church that traditionally looked like the church of the United States that's growing. It's, It's different churches that are growing, and those ones, the more traditional ones, are the ones that aren't growing, right? But around the world, do you know that in, in, in Latin America, where I was a missionary for some time, I got to see the church exploding. And it continues to do that in places like Brazil and Central America. In places like China, where it's against the law for believers to gather. The gates of Hades have not overcome the people the believers in that place, but instead they've continued to grow. They meet in uh, underground and basements and in, in small groups. They practice the, the, the calling of Jesus upon their life. And the government hasn't been able, yeah, the government's thrown them in prison. But every time they do that and they get on the news about it, a hundred more people come to faith in Christ because of it. No one has been able to shut down God's church. No one will be able to shut down God's church, for he has given us a ministry. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. We can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I don't have a lot of time, but let me clarify a few things in this real quick. When he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, he is talking about the reconciliation of sinful man with a holy God. That Christ came down and died on a cross in order to bridge the gap that had separated us from God. To do something about our sin that had caused God to turn his back on us. That is the ministry of reconciliation. It's about the reconciliation between God and man. Many churches, many of those that are in decline, like I talked about earlier, have turned this phrase into something very different. The greatest need that men and women have is to be reconciled to God. It isn't racial reconciliation. It isn't other things. Not to say that any of those things are bad. I believe that when people are in right relationship with God, we begin to see things like slavery go away. That's what happened in history, right? We begin to see men and women who could only see differences between each other begin to be reconciled because of the the commonality that they have in Christ. 
Look around this room today. People who look very different than you are sitting here doing the same thing, raising their hands and worshiping the same God. Why? Because God has made things right between us and him. It is the greatest commonality we all have here. A kid from California is here talking to a bunch of people from Kentucky. How is that possible? Because Christ has made it possible. By, by putting us all in the same boat, by, by making us all people who have been forgiven by him. Because of that one thing, we all have much more in common than we do and have differences. The ministry of reconciliation that he has given us as the church is to go out and make sure that others know that forgiveness is possible. Jesus makes it clear the man's greatest need was to be forgiven of his sins. You and I should have an urgency about us that we are out handing out the forgiveness of God to others, allowing people to respond to that forgiveness in their own life. There are a number of things that are important that we do here at a church. Maybe worship, let's take that one. Is worship the most important purpose of the church? Is it a purpose of the church? Yes. We are called to worship, to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, to pray together, to read God's word together, to live lives that, 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 that worship God. But when are you going to worship God better than you've ever worshiped him before in your life? About a half a second after you croak and you're in the very presence of God, you're going to worship him better than you ever have before. Or how about discipleship? Growing and knowing God, is that important? Absolutely it's important. We're called to do that, to study, to show thyself one is approved. But when are you going to know God more than you've ever known him before? About a half a second after you take your last breath and you stand in his glory and, and you see him without the, 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 the sin that, that, that fogs up our understanding of him, you're going to know him better than ever. Or service. It says that, 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 that in heaven we're going to serve God. When are you going to serve God better than you've ever served God before in your life? About half a second after you take your last breath here on earth. Everybody else here is going to be crying over you and everything. And you're going to be up there and say, God, put me to work. What do you want me to do? And there's going to be no doubt in your mind because he's going to tell you exactly what he wants you to do. How about fellowship? When are you going to get along with other believers better than you've ever gotten along with them before? And now some of you say, I got a great community group. We, we're tight. That's true, but I, I'm guessing that there's still things that happen in that community group that you have to work through on a regular basis. You know, people look at each other the wrong way, or somebody has a bad day and says something stupid, right? When are you going get, to get along with Christians and have better Christian fellowship than you've ever had before? That's right, about a half a second after you take your last breath here on earth, Right? and you're in heaven, and sin's been washed away, and there's nothing that separates you from having perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy, perfect openness. There's no more hiding. What's the one purpose of the church that we can't do after we take our last breath here? That is to practice the ministry of reconciliation. Evangelism is the most urgent, and because of that word, I say it's the most important purpose of the church. It should drive our lives. It should, it should make sense out of everything else that we do. It should make sense about how we get up and go to work, about how we do family every day, even about how we do church here together. 
It's the one thing that can't be done after our time here on earth ends. It's the one thing that we should be focused on. It's why we should have a list of those 8 to 15 people that God's put on the front row of our life. Because it's that urgent. We should be praying over that list every day. We should, we should be looking for opportunities to invest in the lives of the people on that list. To invite them, to invite them to a conversation about who Jesus is or to invite them to a church service so they can hear his word preached. And then to prepare our own lives. Live our lives in such a way that it reflects Jesus to them. In forgiving this man's sins, Jesus does a second thing. Not only does he tell us what's most important, but he also picks a fight with the religious leaders. I'm going to try to quickly go through this last part. But I, I want you to see this because this is, this is important. Starting in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Remember, word had gone out that Jesus was healing, that he was doing these great things. Well, some of the people that got word were the religious leaders. And they're going to come over and they're going to start kind of peeking in, trying to find out who this man Jesus is all about, whether it's somebody they have to be worried about or not. Well, quickly, Jesus confronts them by forgiving this man's sin. So they're questioning, it says, in their hearts. They're not talking out loud. They're not discussing this with each other. It's just in their own hearts. They're, they're having these, these thoughts go through their mind. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This was a big deal to the Jewish people. Only God was allowed to forgive sins. And Jesus, as he went around, in fact, this is the, the greatest evidence of Jesus' deity, was the fact that he freely forgave sins. In fact, it was what put him on a cross. If you, if you go a little bit further, remember we talked about the pool, the man jumping in. He went and forgave that, that man, and he got up and walked. He took up his mat and, and went home. It was, it was, it was that incident that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back and sent Jesus to a cross because he forgave him of his sins. Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that the, this questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? <coughs> the religious leaders were not there to learn from Jesus, but instead they were trying to make sense out of him through their already predetermined worldviews. They were bringing all of their baggage into the house that day. All of the things they'd been taught from the past, all of their past experiences, they were bringing it with them into that house and trying to make sense out of this man that was preaching a radical gospel. And they were coming to the wrong conclusions. God will not be made smaller to fit into any set of beliefs or rituals. I don't know what God you serve. But the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Trinity, the three in one, he is a God that is far bigger than any of our theological frameworks could fit him in. And it's a danger for us to think we have figured it all out. It's dangerous for us not to come to him or to come to others with some sense of humility saying we're just a bunch of, of travelers along the way trying to figure out this whole thing. But when we start walking around like we have figured it all out, we become no better than the scribes that are standing in front of Jesus at this moment. 
who are questioning him. Yes, they're just doing it in their own mind, but Jesus sees all things, even those things that are hidden, and calls them out on it. You and I are tempted to get so involved in the theological debates, to to, to never settle in, and because of that, use that as an excuse to not be on mission. We, We have the same temptation that these religious leaders had before was just to sit back and wait and see. But guys, all of the dots are never going to be connected. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to follow through. We have to be on mission for him. It's only going to make more sense as we follow Jesus. It says that I put in the notes there that he will not be recreated in the image of our orthodoxy. Instead, we are created in his image, right? We don't get to determine who God is or what his orthodoxy is. We study God's word. It is infallible. It is is our guide. It, It tells us things about God that we couldn't come up with on our own. But let us never raise up our own orthodoxy to be a place where it keeps us from being on mission. Instead, we have to conform to his revealed truth. So often we get caught up in our own way of thinking that we miss God's work amongst us. Here this man was healed right in front of their eyes. In fact, he wasn't healed yet, but here here this man was needy right in front of their eyes. And Jesus was offering him an eternal pardon of his sins. And all the guys could think about, the religious leaders could think about is, that doesn't fit in my box that God should fit in. Instead of being happy for this man, they start questioning it. Pastor Brad said this, it was the first week I came to visit here. He said, the message of Jesus has never been good news to proud or powerful people. May we never be counted in that boat. Let's finish the story. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Jesus is telling the religious people, your sins are forgiven? What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven? You don't get to see the results of that, right? You can believe it or not believe it. Or is it to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Put them in a bit of a catch-22, right? (laughs) Because they could watch the man rise, get up in bed, take up his bed and walk. They couldn't see the effects of the sin. But we all know that the harder part is the sin part, right? That it took Jesus going to a cross, shedding his blood, his his body being broken, in order for that forgiveness to be a reality for us. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like it. He shut the mouth of those religious people. But then that gets to us. What do we do with this story? Is the forgiveness of sins the most important job that God has given us? 
the ministry of reconciliation, to go and to make sure that other people are, are reconciled to God. Jesus sure thought it was the most important need in this man's life. And he sure sent us out, we see in 2 Corinthians, to go and to have that same mission in our world today. My question to you is simple. Are you willing to take the challenge? Are you willing to step off, to, to, to make a list, to pray every day? But would you go a step further? And would you help us carry the load as a church? You know, there's four men. I, I imagine each of them had a corner of that mat, and we're carrying that man to Jesus. And every week as a church, we strive to be a place where people could come and hear the good news of Jesus preached clearly and with conviction. But it sure would be a lot easier if we'd all pull our weight, right? If we'd all hold a corner of that mat and do our, our part of it. Today, we've intentionally made our service a little bit, a little bit, I went a little long, but a little bit shorter uh, we're not going to do a song here at the end, but instead what we want to do is invite you, invite you to grab a hold of the mat with us and help us as we carry the work of Christ forward in his grace. It's all possible because of what he did for us. Around the, the lobby here today, we placed a, a number of different tables and signs. Each sign represents a different team that serves here at the church. Would you consider using your time, your talent, and your physical energy to come and to serve God's church, to make this a place where when somebody brings a member of their 8 to 15 to come here in order to hear God's word preach, their kids would have a distraction-free place where they could go and learn about Jesus too. Or would you be somebody that stands at a door and offers a, a kind greeting to people to make them feel welcome? Imagine when you bring your friend here for the first time, the person you've been praying for for weeks and months, wouldn't it be nice to have your friend have a nice warm welcome when they walk in the door? I sure think it would. That's what I would hope for. In fact, I hope during second service today, I met somebody this week. She said she's going to come here today. I hope that she gets a warm welcome, one that says, I hope you come back next week when she walks through that door. All right? Or a cup of coffee or, you know, a, a, a bulletin in, in their hands. There's a lot of ways to serve around here. Our students are a great example. Our young people who are making big life decisions. Decisions that could send their, their, their world one way or another. You know it because you made some of those decisions in, in high school and you wish you would have made a different one, right? But what, what if they had a place to go to where they could be directed by God's word? Would you step up and help them to understand that? So that way their lives, the trajectory of their lives could be pointed in the way of Jesus. There's lots of opportunities to serve around here. Our kids department is going to hold your kids. You don't have to go pick them up right away. They've got some things planned in order to keep them busy and to teach them more about Jesus over the next several minutes. And so as we dismiss here today, we want to invite you to linger in our lobby, to go and visit all these different uh, tables that we've set up. And then in about 10 or 15 minutes, you can go pick up your kids. But, but we, we really want you to, to, to consider, to, to pray about, to, to ask questions about the different ministries that exist out there as an opportunity for you to come and hold the mat with us as we carry our 8 to 15, as we carry our friends to Jesus to make sure that they have an encounter with him. Would you pray with me today? Lord, thank you. Thank you because you love us, because you go before us, because you point out to us what our greatest need is. 
You don't sugarcoat it. You don't, uh, um, you, you just say it as it is. That, that we need to be reconciled with you. And so, Lord, with everybody's eyes closed and everybody's head bowed, I pray today, Lord, that if there's anybody in this room that hasn't taken that step of faith to say, today, I follow you with my life. Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts. And if that's you in this room today, uh, you can follow Jesus. You could be made right with him. You could have peace with him. But it starts by, A, admitting that you're a sinner. Admitting that your sin has separated you from him. And B, believing that Jesus was the answer to, his, to that sin. That, that he went to a cross and, and in doing so, he took your sin and made things right between you and a holy God. But you have to see, you have to see, choose to place your faith in him. Choose to take that, that sometimes scary step to say, God, I don't understand it all, but I choose today to follow you because I can no longer deny your love for me. You can do it just by praying right where you're at. Praying is simply just talking to God. It's right there in the quietness of your heart. You could say something like this, Lord, I admit, I admit that I don't measure up, that I've made mistakes. But today I believe, I believe that Jesus was enough to overcome my sin. And so today I choose, I choose to place my faith in you, to follow you with my life. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to be people who are focused on the right things. That, 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 that fall in love with your plan A for the world in order that we could see more people here in northern Kentucky, in Kenton County, in Independence, saved from their sins and respond to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.